The Bitcoin Standard Toolkit is a selection of Bitcoin services I recommend to my readers and learners on Safedeen.com as they upgrade their monetary operating system from the fiat standard to the Bitcoin standard. These companies are NIDIC, a leading full-service financial services firm dedicated to Bitcoin, applying institutional wisdom and ingenuity to help clients access the unrealized potential of this emerging asset class. NIDIG offers the full suite of solutions needed for financial institutions to access Bitcoin, including custody, execution, financing, treasury solutions, integration partnerships, and more. The team behind NIDIG brings decades of experience in the financial markets and passion for sound money to help provide the rails that will bring about a move to the Bitcoin standard. I have been working as a consultant for NIDIG for two years now, and I'm very impressed with their vision, focus, and execution. Go to NIDIG.com to learn more. CypherSafe. To secure your Bitcoins, it is important to keep your seed phrase backed up safely. And for that, I highly recommend using the Cypher Wheel Seed Storage Device, a gorgeous and brilliant sturdy piece of low-time preference engineering from a fourth-generation machine shop in Maine. The cipher wheel is machined from solid stainless steel and its unique and elegant design is inspired by secret decoder rings as well as legendary mechanical engineer Franz Rouleau and the golden age of machine design. If you've read the Bitcoin standard you'll know I think the late 19th century was a golden age for many facets of human advancement because of hard money. Bitcoin is bringing hard money back and our friends at CypherSafe are giving Bitcoin the low time preference machines it deserves from the golden age of design. Go to cyphersafe.io to get the cipher wheel for your Bitcoins. Okay coin. Whenever someone asks me how to invest in Bitcoin, my advice is to accumulate Bitcoins periodically for the long run, or what is called dollar cost averaging. When you buy every day, week or month, you channel Bitcoin's volatility to your advantage. In the long run, this strategy will outperform every other Bitcoin investment strategy probably, except for amazing luck perhaps. The best place to do recurring purchases is OKCoin because they have the lowest fees for recurring Bitcoin purchases you will find anywhere. If you're stacking sats for the long run, every sat matters and the fees with each purchase will add up. That's why I recommend you buy at the lowest cost possible from OKCoin. OKCoin is also the Bitcoin exchange available in the most countries around the world, so it will hopefully be accessible for you wherever you are. Go to OKCoin.com to get started with your stacking. Not all one. As discussed in the Bitcoin standard, Bitcoin is controlled by the nodes that operate its software. It is only through consensus between nodes that the Bitcoin blockchain continues to live, and it is only by running a Bitcoin node that you are part of this consensus and can verify the validity of the transactions you receive and the ownership of your Whenever anyone asks me what are the most important warning signs that something is wrong with Bitcoin, I always answer the following. If the number of Bitcoin nodes is declining, and or the cost of running a node is rising significantly. I believe it is really important to run a node, but I don't recommend running it on your work or personal computer as it can compromise the performance of your computer and, more importantly, the security and privacy of your Bitcoin node. A far better solution is to buy a dedicated hardware node, and for that, I highly recommend Noddle. Manage all your Bitcoin activity, such as Lightning or BTC Pay Server, and isolate them from your personal computer by putting them into one dedicated device that is always running and does one thing only, Bitcoin. Become a first-class Bitcoin citizen by running your own Noddle node, available at noddle.it, and that's spelled N-O-D-L dot I-T. Finally, cold card. My hardware wallet of choice is the cold card. I strongly recommend only conducting Bitcoin trades on computers that are dedicated to Bitcoin and cannot connect to the internet. I I like the cold card because it is a contained machine optimized for Bitcoin and Bitcoin only. Cold card is basically a small computer that can only do Bitcoin, which makes securing it more straightforward. Use the code Bitcoin standard on coldcardwallet.com to get a 5% discount. Hello and welcome to another Bitcoin standard podcast seminar. In today's seminar, our guest is Joel from Untapped Growth, whose handle on Twitter is also Untapped Growth. Joel works in regenerative grazing and um, his company Untapped Growth works on regenerating lands 
through cattle grazing. Joel has a very Bitcoin-centric view of this. And I think it's a message that resonates with a lot of Bitcoiners because grazing land and taking care of land for the long term produces the food that is healthy in the long term for human beings and makes the land healthy in the long term. Whereas I guess in the fiat era, we saw low interest rates subsidies go to foods that generate a high profit in the short term, but deplete the land in the long term and deplete human health. So Joel is not just talking about this, he's actually out there and uh, fixing it. So Joel, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to be here, Safe. So uh, tell us a little bit more about untapped growth and what is it that you guys do? So I built my ranch publicly kind of in Bitcoin Twitter while I was talking about it all. A lot of the Bitcoiners knew I was working on this for a long, long time. The way this whole project evolved is just locally, I run a little small business. I end up running into a lady through normal operations in my small business who wanted to lease land to somebody because with her, she's stuck paying these high residential tax rates on her property that's zoned agriculture because they do recreational horses and stuff. And I end up getting set up with this low cost lease deal where I'm grazing a bunch of land for her for like a buck a year rental. And then talking about this project publicly, I had some people join on. We ended up developing a bunch of herd shares. That way, a couple of wealthy Bitcoiners could get sustainable meat for their family and kind of control the supply chain all the way from the dirt all the way to their family's dinner plate, right? And as that whole thing grew, I ended up having a bunch of people knocking on my door. I had a bunch of wealthy investors who are all like, hey, get us some more of these herd shares because we want sustainable food for our family too, as well as like it's a store of value and a very good diversification play in animal genetics of something that can actually survive the chaos of the world if we have supply chain breakdowns and everything. And then I also had other people who wanted to hold real estate investments trying to talk to me like, hey, could you find some people to help come graze my land? And then I had a bunch of ranchers talking to me of like, hey, like, how did you build your farm like this? And I was like, I think I need to just start introducing people together. <laughs> you guys all have mutual synergistic problems here. And so I booted up the Untapped Growth Cattle Co-op, kind of a little nonprofit that we're building. And I literally am just doing matchmaking. I'm taking these different parties whose problems all solve each other's issues and bringing them together, helping facilitate some mutually beneficial deals. And we're going after building as many of these little ranches that are doing regenerative grazing as we can to heal as much of the land and provide as much of a secure food chain for the Bitcoiners here in America that we can. That's fantastic. Now, tell us a little bit more about regenerative regenerative grazing. It's a fascinating topic that I've read quite a bit about over time, and I find it absolutely fascinating. Tell us more about what it is, how it works, and what it does. Basically, give us our guide how to make our own stakes and make the land around us green. <laughs> so modern agriculture is very much just strip mining, right? It treats the soil solely as something that just kind of holds plants in place. And then they go through and spray it with all sorts of fertilizers, pesticides, all sorts of just whatever support chemicals it needs to try to produce a crop. Now, there's no way that you can match the symbiosis of life that's supposed to be found in the soil that grows crops. Regenerative agriculture treats the soil rather than just being a machine. We treat it as a living organism. It's more akin to kind of like romance than it is a reductionist type approach, right? What we do is we approach it as a system 
to understand the symbiosis between one, how the soil feeds the plants to create the healthiest crops possible. But on top of that, how do we, as we're raising something, also grow soil at the same time? Because plants are literally, they're just taking sun energy, they're capturing it, they're converting carbon from the air and building soil out of it. And they do it through not just growing matter and then like with the cows, they graze it. Cows are like a giant compost vat with their multiple stomachs, right? Then they just drop little compost nuggets everywhere. <laughs> so not only are you building like organic matter in the soil and biological matter in the soil from the cattle grazing that way, but you're also maximizing the capturing of sun energy. So grasslands are one of the best ways to capture as much photosynthetic energy as possible. And believe it or not, most of the carbon that gets put into a soil from these grasslands is actually not from that grazing and decomposing process with the cattle. It's actually from root exudates. Plants, as they're photosynthesizing, actually put energy into the soil to feed the biology of the soil. And then a healthy soil, those little microbiology, whatever, whatever different types you want to think about, your fungus, your yeast, your bacteria, they go into the soil and they mine it to bring back to the plant what the plant needs. It's a very kind of like symbiotic web of life in the soil. We call it the soil food web. Because if you think about just dirt, dirt is just, it's just crushed sediment. It's just rock matter, right? And that mineral is all over the planet. It's everywhere, whether you're in a desert with all the sand or the clays over here, like where I'm sitting here in Georgia. The difference between a dead dirt and a living soil is the presence of that organic matter and then all that biological activity that is going into that soil to mine all that sediment layer for all the minerals and form what plants need in order for them to grow. And so those plants are getting fed by this really complex soil food web that's going out and not just getting the minerals, but it's actually manufacturing all sorts of complex carbohydrates, whole amino acids, and all the things that plants need to thrive. And when you run that system from a holistic approach, you can reach this place where it's gathering so much energy as that biological level of soil is mining the mineral layer that the plants are photosynthesizing at such a high rate that they're actually putting more root exudates of energy into the soil than the plants actually need to grow. So that year on year, you're actually building more and more non-decomposable carbon in the soil and the top soil is getting deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. What happens as that goes on, like you think about, like we were talking earlier about Jordan, a lot of areas that are becoming desertified, it's not that they don't get enough water. They tend to get water torrentially. It's this big dump. It all flash floods off the surface. It erodes a bunch of the dirt and everything with it. And then it just goes back to being right dry again. When you've got this organic matter in the soil built up from doing regenerative grazing systems like this, or even regenerative cropping, if you know what you're doing, you're able to penetrate all that flash of water into the soil. So it actually absorbs and holds it all. And it'll hold the water all the way through to keep the plant life and the soil covered. So it'll continuously grow. That'll keep it shaded, keep the soil cool, keep it alive all the way until you pass that seasonal cycle back to the rainy season again. So you can use intelligence of managing these systems to literally regreen deserts to make it possible to uh, have things growing in climates that you wouldn't think it was possible at all. Is that a good little intro for you, Safe? that answer what you want to know? 
Yes, absolutely. It's really interesting because the way we learn about it in school and university is that there are different climates and there are different uh, parts of the world and they're just the way they are because of the lottery of geography. Some places are desert and some places are lush forests and there's nothing you can do about it. But it seems like uh, desertification might in many cases be a function or a result of agriculture, right? Absolutely. Because our modern agricultural practices with our tilling and all the things are sprayed on the soil to kill the biological layer of the soil, it creates all sorts of erosion. And when you get that erosion going, you break up off the surface level of the soil. So it's mostly just that dirt, that just sediment layer, right? And when you have none of the root structure of growing plants holding that together, eventually you just lose your ability for water to infiltrate and hold in the soil. And it creates this negative spiral to where eventually you're just losing all the water through evaporation. And then it gets hot enough in a whole region that you get this heat cap above an area for a large enough area like the Sahara or something where no more weather patterns or rain can even form anymore because you don't have any of the plants respirating. You don't have the soil holding the water. You've just completely destroyed the entire ecosystem over a whole zone of the planet. Yeah, but do you think this is also true for not just modern agriculture, but also for traditional agriculture? Because I think there's probably evidence that uh, most cultures that sustained agriculture for centuries or millennia did so with rotational grazing where they would uh, graze some land for a little period of time and then graze and move the planting to another plot and continuously rotate between the grazing and the uh, plants and then when people fail to do that you witness destruction of the soil and then famines and uh, desertification right yeah especially when they started trying to get into tilling hillsides and cut down the trees because I had a low time or a high time preference, I need to just make more and more production now, 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 versus understanding that they needed to protect and invest in their soil as a culture. When they did that, you'd have the soil getting washed off the hillside until eventually this whole system happened or this whole cycle of downfall happened. This has been a very normal thing. I, I know Alan's reading the book I recommend to him. It's called Dirt, the Erosion of Civilizations. It's a really good book where he goes through and talks about how when a civilization is investing in low time preference in their soil, they can thrive for a millennia. But when they start stripping from the soil with a high time preference, trying to steal more productivity from tomorrow, that eventually these civilizations will collapse. This has been a trend in history. We rise and fall with our time preference. It's never shown more strongly than in farming. Yeah, absolutely. It's really fascinating. I don't know much about it because generally it's not mentioned a lot and it's mentioned as more of a consequence that the farming collapsed and people starved. But I think uh, people miss the story of the soil. It's about how well you manage the soil. When you preserve it for the long term, sacrificing short term high profits, you're able to maintain it for a very long time. What is uh, the damage that it has done modern agriculture in the US, let's say? You probably know that best. In the U.S., we have pretty much no soil left. It's all just dirt. Our soil will not grow crops if we don't spray it with all sorts of fertilizers and amendments. I mean, it's to the point where, like, one of my buddies, Bitcoin and Cows, from uh, the John Ballas podcast, one of his neighbors went and bought some industrial farmland and tried to grow a crop of corn, and it got, like, six inches tall and never bore any fruit. 
there's just no productive capacity left due to our tilling and our fertilizing for our programs. We've just destroyed everything. Yeah, it's pretty stark. When you fly over the Midwest, you see just an enormous amount of land that is monocropped for mainly corn and soy, right? I presume those are the two biggest crops in the U.S. at this point. And yep. um, during a few months of the year, they're green, but during the rest of the year, it's just dead desert. You just see endless brown patches. And historically, I think it was said that it used to be that the topsoil in the U.S. was 10 foot deep before European intensive agriculture and before the murder of the buffalo. Is that correct, you think? That is correct. And it wasn't just the buffalo. The buffalo were actually semi-managed by the Native American population that were indigenous here in North America. They intelligently were using control burns and they kind of maximized the migratory patterns through their hunting management. All that developed that 10 or 15 feet of topsoil in the Midwest. If you read Lewis and Clark's journals, they talk about the grass being so deep in the Midwest that it was above the top of a horse's saddle while they were trying to cross the plains on their horse. It's incredible what it used to be. I mean, we used to be known as the breadbasket of the world. We had this beautiful inheritance of incredible productive soil. And that was like the soil is your base productive asset of humankind, right? And we, with our high time preference, destroyed it. Yeah, it was a pretty enormously fast descent in the quality of the soil. With the rest of the world, it was more gradual, I think, because the rest of the world didn't have industrial technology until the last couple of years, last couple of centuries, basically, which is uh, when the U.S. got it. But the U.S. had an advantage being at like the forefront of technological advancement in agriculture, that this stuff has been around for quite a while, and it's had an enormously devastating effect. In the rest of the world, in Europe and in the Middle East and in many parts of the old world, you know, the soil had been degrading slowly and you were having problems with population, but it was gradual and slow and manageable in most cases. But now in the U.S., the stripping of the soil is happening at an incredibly fast rate. It's amazing. There's nothing uh, much left. Do you know when it started? Let me take a wild guess. <laughs> 1971? <laughs> 1972. That's when they started pushing the whole go big or go home thing when it came to industrial agriculture. Yeah, absolutely. And I write about this in the Fiat Standard. I have a chapter on Fiat food. It's very obvious and transparent that the driving motivation for a lot of agricultural policy at that time was making food prices go down. It was all about economies of scale, getting production faster and making food prices go down to beat inflation. Because, you know, obviously stopping the money printers is not a popular way of actually beating inflation, even though that is the only way that actually works. But of course, you know, governments will always lash out at uh, anything else rather than uh, the solution. One of the things that they did is they massively subsidized agriculture, industrial agriculture, and subsidized it to grow at scale. Earl Butts, who was the Secretary of Agriculture at that time, he said, go big or go home. They consolidated all the farmers together. So why did they do that? And what were the implications, you think? It's, I think it was exactly what you're saying. They're trying to drive the cost of food down because of this whole inflation paradigm. They created this whole system where you had to compete with these economies of scale in order to actually be able to like play on the economic playing field here. But it was all about access. Once again, it was this who was the biggest to have the best access to the debt window to get the biggest capital expenditure to buy the massive equipment. 
to get the turnover rates to sell into this giant forming mega industry, right? Just like everything, the Cantillon effect centralized it. In the long run, what it did is it also monetized the land as we've had this whole inflation dynamic happen, right? So now modern farmers, like Greg Judy was one of the ones who really first pushed this message of like, do you know who Greg Judy is? He's pretty uh, big in the regenerative grazing movement. Okay, so he was a mainstream cattle rancher. He pretty much went broke and lost his shirt. and was like, there's got to be a better way to do this. So he developed this low-cost lease model of regenerative grazing where he went out and found a bunch of wealthy people who have recreational hunting properties in Missouri. And he went knocking on the doors and was like, hey, I'll manage your land for you. I'll make it look like Eden. I'll increase the value of the hunting because the wildlife will get more diverse. Your deer will get more like higher quantity and higher quality of kills for you to come out here and hunt. Give me your land to let me graze it for like a buck a year for all your property and you'll never have to think about it again, right? And so he developed this whole system where now as a farmer, he doesn't have to carry the cost of the land out of his actual operating budget to the farm anymore because that usually as a farmer is your biggest capital expense, right? What he was discovering that he didn't really put the words at the time was that land due to this whole inflation thing, due to this whole centralization of farming thing where it got so big, land monetized just kind of like gold, right? It priced out the productive use case of farming because it's all just being held as an investment asset at this point. Mm-hmm. And so small farmers can't afford to own land anymore. Your biggest asset that you should be valuing based upon productive capacity, it's not capable to use it to produce, which is why we've gotten deeper and deeper in this whole subsidy hole trying to keep the whole thing afloat which is pushing more and more towards the same mistakes that destroyed everything to start with of industrial destruction of the soil. It's sad. <laughs> yeah, it's amazingly sad. It's, um, you know, it's the same thing that you see happen in housing where because you can't have a proper saving account in the bank that works as a saving account, you end up over investing in housing and buying properties that you don't really need because at least they'll hold on to their value better than fiat money at a saving account or in government bonds. And the same thing happens with farming land. It's the same thing. You know, fiat money makes everything money. It makes everything else money. You have to monetize everything else. That puts a lot of premium on it. And then when you throw in the fact that that leads to people having an incentive to overexploit it for the short term, you end up with highly unproductive land. So there's very little productivity to be added to it. It's pretty sad. But yeah, as you said, you know, your solution, I think, works excellently for this because the farmer doesn't have to buy the land and the person who owns the land ends up witnessing enormous improvement in the quality of the land, right? Exactly. So it's essentially you're allowing, rather than the gold of the land just to sit in a vault, you have somebody with the intelligence to know that land needs to have the deep value of productivity being stewarded. And so they're allowing their land in the vault to be farmed just because they understand that this is important. Yeah, and ultimately, if you're not uh, farming it, if you're not growing it, then you are degrading it. It's uh, disintegrating. Absolutely. If If it's just left, then it's just accumulating more and more dirt and losing more and more soil, right? Exactly. It's a great solution. And uh, now tell us what you think Bitcoin has to do with all of this stuff. You know, why are you people so obsessed with Bitcoin? Like, why can't you just have your cows? <laughs> so I was a Bitcoiner first, cattle grazer second. Oh, okay. With me, I mean, if you look at self-sovereignty, the three-legged stool, money, energy, food. 
Bitcoin takes care of the money. We got a lot of guys working on energy through stranded gas well mining and things like that. Nobody was doing food. So I figured if we're going to start building citadels, I mean, the whole thesis of the sovereign individual, right, is going to disempower the state. And as this whole transition gets volatile, we need self-sovereignty in our communities. That way we can tell the government, fuck you, if they try to make us do this whole vax passport nonsense or whatever for us to better feed our families and purchase goods and services, we need to have access to the whole supply chain, starting with the base productive asset of land and food supply to feed our families. I kind of started as a Bitcoiner, but what Bitcoin does from us here, it gives me confidence to make a play where essentially I'm shorting the entire agriculture industry in the belief that its monetary valuation will actually reach an equilibrium that makes more sense again one day. So we're investing all this effort to rebuild land measured with actual deep value of fertility, even though land's not valued that way today. I mean, most land's based upon just kind of fashion price, right, of what's closest to the city centers or whatever. And then animal genetics is another thing we're kind of doing because modern cattle have chased these fiat incentives so far where so like we had all the subsidies of grain and corn right and like fiat does everything it creates a race to the bottom of who can get the cheapest we ended up developing our whole cattle industry around feeding them these cheap subsidy crops and then we raced to the bottom faster and faster to where we started feeding them industrial reject products like bakery rejects like miscolored skittles and sprinkles and things just to get more and more calories in them cheaper right and in that race to grow cows at the cheapest input price possible, we've created a modern cattle genetics across our whole country that literally can't survive on just grass for the majority of them. They can't maintain enough body condition without all this extra feed input, as well as all the medical care of your vaccines, your antiparasites, and all these just things we use crutches to keep them alive, right? So our cows can't be used to steward the land anymore. They only work in feedlots. What I'm doing is I'm going after some of these old heritage breed animals, ancient genetics, they're actually capable of being cows, right? And the problem is the whole fiat marketplace is based upon fats. Most of your cattle sales at the auction houses, they're all based upon these just stupid metrics of these EPD sheets that are completely manipulated statistics, just like everything is in fiat. The whole cattle sale industry is based around these EPDs. It's all manipulated spreadsheets, just about kind of pandering to those that are the top of the industry. It's all politics, just like everything else is in fiat, right? What it's done is it's put a lot of us cattle grazers in this world where the cattle that we truly want to be raising are not profitable to raise because they have no USD value to them. They don't resell. So you've got these cows that are so sick, they can't even graze on grass. They'll sell from anywhere for like the breeding stock of Angus from like 3,500 to 4,500, maybe five grand an animal versus these heritage breed cows that are actually really quality animals. You're lucky to get 1,500 to two grand out of them. So the whole marketplace is just broken. It incentivizes you and to just the stay reason, on the reason, The reason they're much uh, cheaper, the good animals are cheaper, is why exactly? Because they make less meat per animal? They're not as fast? It has, it has nothing to do with that. I mean, you could have these animals where they're bred 
they're producing more meat of a higher quality and the industry still wouldn't care. What's happening is it's all based around the statistical analysis of what animals are like has the quote unquote best genetics. But the whole thing is manipulated based upon false metrics and even solving for the wrong the wrong questions in the first place. Yeah, I mean, shouldn't the market decide just in price? You know, that's how it should actually just work. You would think so, except for the fact that this whole market is centralized around these mega processors, right? We have four processors processing 80% of the meat in our country. And it's essentially like an OPEC thing where these guys are colluding with a perfect monopoly where when cattle prices start going up, they literally just stop buying cattle. So there's this whole collusion to keep the industry where it's at because this is how these guys keep their power base, right? It's not a free market. With us, we're trusting that Bitcoin fixes the money. And when the money gets fixed, it snaps everything to a hard money standard where prices actually go to their underlying value again. It gives us the confidence to hold these positions that have deep value of actual real worth because they're productive and useful rather than the current fiat fashion value. That way, when Bitcoin fixes all this, not only do we have the assets that in a collapse of agriculture scenario that are going to be able to survive and feed our families, but we have the assets that are actually be worth real money again versus the broken stuff everybody else is holding due to the fads of fiat. Yeah, I think Bitcoin is a much more individual solution, perhaps. It, it, it doesn't have to fix the entire global economy for you to be able to use it and do your thing. You know, you can, you can switch to a Bitcoin standard. You can lower your time preference because now you have a form of saving that you have very good confidence is going to be at significantly higher, if not at least, uh, you know, at higher value than where it is right now in three, four years time. So if you're able to rely on something like this, and the more your confidence in this thing grows, the more certain your future becomes, the less you start discounting the future, the lower your time preference becomes. And so the more you act with sight of the future. So I think you're able to do that whether other people do or or don't, because ultimately they're running on a monetary standard that is losing value every year. And so they're having to discount things very heavily. And that just ends up hurting them in the long run and helping you. It effectively means you're going to have better chances in the future in terms of having better ability to command the assets, I think. Agreed. I mean, not only is it allows me to lower my time preference on my personal balance sheet, but it allows me to trust that, like we all say, Bitcoin fixes this. I mean, you can't escape the consequences of somebody holding the money harder than you, right? So eventually it's going to fix all these things out there that are misvalued because it's going to create a clean measuring stick again. So it enables me to make a bet on the entire industry that's broken, knowing that the measuring stick within the next 10 to 20 years is going to actually be fixed. And when it does, the world will value all the work I put in right now that doesn't look like it has any USD valuation. Yeah, I think, you know, when you can turn a desert into ribeye, that's going to have a very good valuation by the market. I think the market values ribeye quite well. And meat prices are going up enormously recently. Uh, a lot of people I see reporting all of their 
the US, then meat prices have gone up significantly. How do you see this affecting the meat market? And what are your thoughts on the meat market and on the on the different kinds of cattle that are out there? What do you think of the quality of supermarket meat, commercially produced meat in the US? Most commercially produced meat is pretty poor quality because going through this whole industry where you're talking about the race to the bottom of feeding them all this cheap, low-cost inputs, right? In the long run, meat should be one of our cheaper foods, red meat in particular. I agree with Greg, not Greg Judy, with uh, Joel Salatin where he talks about red meat should actually be cheaper than chicken because chicken, you're putting in all this grain and feed input, right? Versus cattle, they're literally just eating scrubby um, carbon matter that's just rough, roughage cellulose that you could be grazing just on any just marginal land. That should reach an equilibrium that's at a reasonable price again when the markets actually function in a healthy way. But today, you look at the short term, they're doing this whole thing with Bill Gates buying up all the farmland in the US. You've got this whole centralized process industry colluding against farmers to drive the price of cattle down and meat up. It's really interesting to think about, like, I'm not sure how that's all going to play out. In the long run, I would think meat's going to become reasonably cheap again once we have farms that are capable of producing again, which is going to be after the collapse of fiat. We have to get there first, though. The way that commercial agriculture works in the U.S., they still graze the cattle for, I think, a majority of the cattle's life, but then they lock it up in a place where it can't move and they feed it. Basically, they put it on a standard American diet, feed it something similar to what the average American eats, more or less, and they lock it up at home, which is becoming an increasing occurrence, not just for Americans, all over the world, of course. And then that gets them extremely obese, and then they kill them just before they start developing serious diseases, but that's at the point where they have the most meat. People who do regenerative grazing generally prefer to just take the meat straight from grazing to slaughter without that extra period. So does that end up hurting the economics, you think? That's why it ends up being a little bit more expensive? Or is it because of the cattle feed being subsidized? The fact that all of that cattle feed is corn and soy that ends up getting a ton of subsidies. Biggest thing driving the cost difference is literally the regulations around animal processing. I can outcompete them with my low cost input because all I'm feeding my cattle is a little bit of salt and then just brush on my scrubland, right? The input costs are extraordinarily low. But when it comes to processing the cattle and selling them, that's where these mega producers all have the inside track. If we could get rid of the regulatory burden in the U.S. to where I was actually allowed to butcher my cow and sell it directly to my friends and family and the community around me at large, I could get the price of meat down like crazy for them. It's literally just the regulation issues that make them outcompete the little guys so bad. You can't just sell meat to your friends and family? No, it's completely illegal. In Texas, one of the freest states, if I go to a non-USDA inspected butcher, have them process my cow off my farm, I'm allowed to drive that meat from that non-inspected processor back to my house. Once it's at my house, I'm not allowed to transport anywhere else. I can't give it to a starving family at church. I can't give it to family or friends. I can't give it to the homeless. All I'm allowed to do with it is cook it for myself. And if you were a guest in my house, I can share some of what I cook with you. That's it. Everything else is illegal. Wow. But is that in all American states? No. Pretty much all of them except for Wyoming. But technically, like Wyoming is just loophole that 
Yeah. The case for Wyoming continues to get more compelling for Bitcoiners. They've got a Bitcoiner senator from Wyoming, Senator Cynthia Lummis, and they've got cattle freedom. You know, they have the free meat, free as in, you know, freedom, not as in uh, for free. And they've also got good Bitcoin regulations that they're, that they're working on. So this definitely uh, seems, I think, encouraging. Wyoming's really interesting, too, in that they actually do all their taxes on their land based upon the productive capacity of the soil. So they measure AUMs of how many cattle you can run on the property. And that's what your tax rate is in Wyoming. Oh, interesting. Some yeah, that, it actually makes sense. Yeah, I guess. So uh, Kiki is asking, you're leasing these farmland so as to avoid high property taxes on unfarmed farmland, right? If it's unfarmed, then it's treated differently from farmland for tax purposes, right? Yes, that's what the value prop is for a lot of the people who are trying to hold on to owning the land. Is when I come in and help find somebody to graze it for them, it gets their tax rate down significantly. Not only yeah. that, but you're building real value because you're increasing the fertile capacity of their soil, right? So in the long run, that'll increase property value. Yeah, but do you think these tax uh, arrangements can continue, that it'll continue to work, or do you think that they could change the regulations around this? If they start changing things like that to charge more for people doing agriculture, there will be no agriculture left. They're throwing subsidies at agriculture left and right, because if they don't, the nation starves. So it's not just tax benefits that you get for agriculture, but there is so much easy money out there right now around it too. But once again, all that easy money flows to the cotillionaires who are the closest to the cheap debt window and all the other parts of these processes. So it's yeah, centralizing the mega corporations all over again. Yeah. And I think people have a lot of romanticism around the idea of farms and they think, you know, farming subsidies are out there helping the small American farmer keep his family on their farm and feed themselves and make the nice little basket of peaches that comes into your supermarket from uh, the organic uh, farm that he has. It's not. It's, uh, you know, the, the farmers that are left are essentially running uh, industrial operations. They're industrialists, basically. <laughs> They're, uh, yeah. It's, it's corpse. It's working extremely high efficiency industry. It's depleting the soil and it's spraying all kinds of pesticides. Incidentally, you know, I think one very important point that doesn't get made enough, people are always given the perspective in the media of uh, eating meat being evil because it kills animals. And, you know, the idea, the counter, of course, is that if you go vegan or vegetarian, then you're getting your foods immaculately without any blood having to be shed and without anybody having to lose their life. And of course, just take a look at one of these giant cornfields, you know, Google cornfield and look at combine harvester. Just go to Google and type combine harvester cornfield and look at the pictures of these massive factories on wheels, basically, that are chopping up the corn or wheat or soy. And just imagine the kind of efficiency of this industrial operation. You know, the, f the farms are all monocropped. They're all identical. There's only one species that lives there. And all the other species are being killed. And that includes all kinds of things, you know, deer and rabbit and rats and turtles and birds. birds. And and bees and it's just an entire ecosystem that's that gets completely destroyed because it would eat the food that we're trying to go there and that's kind of the 
eternal dilemma of agriculture, which is that if you try and grow a plant, there will be, if you, you grow it, you have to grow it in nature and there will be other creatures that can get to it. And if they get to it, they're going to want to eat it, whether it's insects or birds or squirrels or rabbits or deer, they're going to want to have your things. And so you can't have agriculture without essentially killing animals that, that transgress on your uh, property. Otherwise, you would lose it all in one way or the other. So you end up probably causing far more devastation because you're destroying complete ecosystems. Think of all that land that's turned into monocropped land. It's all identical. There's only one species, more or less, that lives there. Everything else is being eradicated. On the other hand, if you had cows grazing, there'd be an enormous richness to the ecosystem. You know, deer and the turtles and the rabbits and uh, the snakes and all of that stuff, it would be there. It would be rich and the soil would hold them all. Yeah, I mean, I've got such a wild ecosystem diversity on my property. I know people that are actually using cattle down in Mississippi where they're coming through and they're doing controlled burns to rejuvenate ecosystems that are fire dependent. And mm -hmm. what they're finding is when they do these controlled burns, they're bringing back endangered species ground cover plants that used to be in these areas, but everybody thought was mostly extinct. And when they bring these things back and then they're using the cows to go in to graze it and they'll come in and clip the seeds of some of these endangered species plants and spread them around the properties after the burns. So you'll have them where they'll grow up. It'll be a lot of char everywhere. Then they send the cows in, cows spread it all around. Then they bring the cows out, let it all grow back up again and green back up, right? What they're finding is that using the cows as a part of that system, growing back the endangered species plants is actually bringing back endangered species animals that were dependent upon those plants. And they're having some incredible things that were thought to be extinct start to come back on some of these properties, like badger tortoises and all sorts of amazing animals. Yeah, you keep hearing these stories of species returning that people think are extinct, but they're just out there hiding from us and from our, <laughs> from our barbaric agricultural practices. <laughs> yeah, you'll find this interesting, Safe. There's some guys, John Kemp would be his name, he runs a company called Advancing Eco Agriculture. He developed this thesis that not just is good soil feeding good plants, but good plants feed good soil. So he got into this whole process of biological-based agriculture, but even doing large-scale cropping systems, where they'll come through and they'll do foliar sprays of nutritional amendments, not chemical stuff, to feed the plants in order to get the plants photosynthesizing at a high enough rate that the plants are feeding the root exudates to like, feed the soil again, right? What he discovered through this system that they developed was what he calls the plant health pyramid, where a plant, as it has stronger soil with a stronger biology, that biology is bringing more complex and complete nutrients to the plant. It's kind of like a symbiotic relationship, right? That these plants actually, when they reach the peak of the pyramid of plant health, they're actually completely disease and pestilence proof. For example, they had a field that was in the middle of an area that was being ravaged by locusts. The locusts wouldn't touch their fields. Their plants, due to the symbiosis with the soil, the whole metabolism of the plant was based upon complete amino acids and complex carbohydrates. The digestive tract of the locusts can only consume simple sugars. So when you had these plants that had the stronger baseline health, the pestilence couldn't consume them because there was none of these simple sugars for the locusts to eat. So when their soil got stronger, 
you could be in the middle of a like a biblical plague and your crops were safe versus your neighbors were all getting ravaged because you'd invested enough depth in the soil to make the soil grow stronger and healthier plants. That's incredible. And it's very analogous to human health because it's the same thing. If your body is full of simple sugars, disease feasts on you, uh, just like the locust on the land. Whereas if you invest in your body by eating things that make your body healthy and not eating things that mess up your body, then disease has a hard time with you. Yeah, what they found is the locusts would come through on their properties and all it would eat was the weeds. Because the soil was so strong, it was given a competitive advantage to the crops rather than the weeds because the weeds actually had a lower state of health because the soil was strong enough it was out-competing the weeds. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So the locusts would come through and eat all the junk stuff and leave their crops alone. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. And these are the things that are possible when you steward your land appropriately. Yeah, I mean, with a long time preference. Yeah, there's a there's a great saying, I think it's Francis Bacon who said it, nature must be obeyed to be commanded. It's amazing the kind of uh, realizations like this that you come across once you've figured out how to run things in a way that goes in accordance with nature. You know, once the land is living in a way that nature finds productive and um, conducive to more life emerging, all kinds of things emerge out of it that are uh, amazing to us. Yeah, it's like when we try to treat things like a machine, I mean, we do this with human health and the body, right? You cause a systemic fragility where you're just chasing, solving one problem after another problem after another problem with all these interventions. And we've done the same thing with farming and the soil where we just have to keep chasing problems that shouldn't exist in the first place because we've not respected the wisdom of the right first principles. Yeah. Now getting a little bit more practical, uh, you know, for the average Bitcoin carnivore listener who's considering getting into this, what's the smallest uh, herd of uh, cows or other animals you think? And what size of land do you need to make a difference in the quality of the land and the size of the land? So what that really comes down to is having enough animals that you can simulate mob behavior. So like you think about in the wild, like the bison over in the Great Plains, the behavior that we're trying to simulate to do the regenerative type grazing is where they're tightly packed together competitively. The reason they used to do that in the wild was because of predator pressure. They're bunching together for safety, right? And now when you're bunched together in a mob, you eat intensively and non-selectively because if you don't eat it, your neighbor will. So it's just munch, 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 right? And then all the food's gone, you trample it, you manure it, and then they migrate and that lets land rest for a long period of time until they come back again in a different season, right? The bison used to do that over huge swaths of North America, and that's what grew all the topsoil, was that way that that grazing pattern matches the proper life cycle of the grasslands and prairie ecosystems, right? Small little so, interruption here. I remember reading that uh, the uh, flock of bison would be, if they passed you, it would take them days to pass. That's how big they used to be. Is that correct? They were huge. I've read a lot of different accounts as far as the numbers, but by all, all intents and purposes, it was extraordinary the amount of carrying capacity of the Great Plains. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. So what we do, we follow that same pattern. 
but rather than using predators to bunch the animals, we just use little electric fences, right? We got little step-in posts and a poly reel that we put around the animals to mob them all together. We let them graze. The goal is to keep them bunched tight enough. You get that same non-selective intensive grazing behavior. And then you've matched that to certain patterns with the grass recovery cycle of moving it and resting it and moving it back post recovery, right? It seems like you need like 15 to 20 animals to really get that behavior where they're really going at that aggressively. If you were just a small homesteader wanting to really build a lot of soil, you could start with sheep. That way they're a little smaller. You can have less land to get as many animals to get that real competitive behavior of them grazing while they're all bunched together. You can do it a little bit smaller and kind of just run some compromises that still makes it work. But really, the larger the herds, the better you're going to have as far as your output of growing soil. You'll get better behavior out of the animals with that whole mob mentality. You'll have an easier time kind of doing that whole natural pattern. Yeah, so when you say larger, what are good numbers? As far as the herd size, I mean, I'm telling people often that 20 to 30 animals is your minimum. Ideally, you'd like to be up at a couple hundred, like one to three hundreds, where most people are running their kind of regenerative grazing operations. But some guys will run them all the way up to thousands or more. Yeah. Real big herds. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the bigger the herd, obviously, the better the soil does, right? Exactly. So how many acres do you need for 20 head of cattle? Depends on the part of the country. I'm telling a lot of people two to four acres per animal for like mm -hmm. where I'm at in Virginia or down here in the panhandle of Florida that used to be cattle country. Other places that are less productive and drier like Wyoming, you could be a lot higher than that, anywhere from like 10 to 30 acres per animal. Oh, okay. And how many of the cows would be breeding stock? Coach Kiki out there with the really, really good, uh, useful, practical questions. So for my cow-calf operation, my whole herd is female, except for a couple bulls to breed them all. One bull can breed 20 to 30 females, typically is what they say. So the majority of that herd is just females making babies every single year. One of the things that I'm trying to do with the Bitcoin community is a lot of us are trying to get self-sovereign to get back to the land, to have control of our own food supply, right? So I'm trying to get guys raising herds, kind of like I'm doing with these larger cow-calf operations. And then we'll wean off steers that are would typically be kind of sold into the feedlot industry for a normal cattle guy. But instead, what we'll do is have a bunch of different homesteaders that are small scale that I'll have my trailer and I'll bring you a couple cows every six months and you finish them out. You have five, six, seven, eight cows at your own little homestead that you sell to your friends or family. That way we have this whole distribution network for these easy keep and feeder animals that way i can focus on raising more of them rather than having to sell them into the feedlot industry i see the average farm to get started if you th let's think in terms of 20 animals 20 30 animals and the land that you need it that kind of startup cost for somebody who wants to just do it how much do you think it costs in current uh, fiat bucks so what it comes down to is getting the land and that's the biggest problem because the land's so hard to get your hands on with it being monetized right yeah with what we're doing if i can get you matched with somebody who just holds the land as a part of their portfolio and then you're grazing it for them startup costs are very minimal 
I mean, I've fenced the back 20 acres of my farm for probably two grand and then put in some water lines. So your infrastructure costs are fairly cheap. Then you just got the cattle. That's what we're booting up at the cattle co-op doing the herd shares. That way everybody's buying in ahead of time to kind of give you the upfront money you need to get your farm going. But if you're thinking these heritage breed animals, you're probably looking anywhere from one to two grand an animal. You're probably looking, if you got a herd of 20 to 30 animals and you're running on, call it a hundred acres or so, probably 10 to 15 grand of fences and infrastructure. So you're probably looking 20, 30, 40, you're probably looking 60, $80,000 startup costs, not counting the land itself then the land's pretty variable. But working with the system we're developing, it makes a lot of that more feasible too. Yeah, that's currently about two Bitcoins these days, which is, it's not that huge of an investment when you think about how inflation is impacting everything. I mean, it's one year tuition at a Fiat university, one year, that'll get you a quarter of a BA in human rights or some other social science at a fiat university think about it you know that could be enough to secure because if you have 20 cows how many cows do you get to slaughter every year every one of my cows has a calf every single year then it takes about 30 months to finish them out to be ready for butchering so you need enough carry capacity if you're trying to finish them all for actually carrying those animals all the way through being finished I but see. uh you're spitting out a cow per year how much a cow per year so all my females are going to have a calf every 11 months or so. So after a couple of years, you're at like 20 cows a year, more or less. You could be making 20 a year. And that's, yep. yeah, that's, that's enough to feed something like 20 families. Yep. Yeah. So two Bitcoins today to feed the 20 families in perpetuity. They just keep regenerating the land, making the land better, and they grow the crops effectively they'll get better and better at it so that's really quite uh, attractive if you think about it you know if people want to live like in a community of 20 people next to some area where cattle are grazing you don't need a lot of cattle to just secure enough food whatever happens in the world if you live next to this this is the thing like if you live next to an area where this happens you guarantee that the soil around you is good it's healthy it protects from natural natural disasters like flooding and landslides it means delicious healthy meat What's not to like? If you do it over large enough tracts of land, you're even purifying the water tables and things because that biological layer of the soil is actually what breaks down all the petroleum products and will actually clean the whole soil and water table as it's infiltrating through it. Nice. And you think this is also workable in lands that have been desert for quite a while, uh, for hundreds or thousands of years, not just modern agriculture victims. But even in deserts, like in the Middle East? Absolutely. It's harder to get it started. If you look at Alan Savory's work, they've really proved out yeah. the system to how to do it. But it's definitely possible. You just need enough rainfall to be able to capture it all that keep things growing through the course of the year. But they've proven that you can actually refill the aquifers and actually bring back historic water patterns of springs and creeks and rivers and things that used to be there. It's pretty incredible when you look at what Savory is doing over in Africa. Yeah, it's absolutely mind-blowing because he posts before and after picture of lands and you see that it was uh, dead land. And then a couple of years later, 
well, maybe not a couple, but a few years later, it's lush forests with uh, water. And it makes sense because, you know, a lot of water falls from the sky. And then when it falls from the sky, if the land is desert, if it's flat, the water just lies on it and then evaporates. Whereas if the soil is rich, it gets absorbed and then it goes into streams and it stays in the land and then it gets uh, evaporated more often. And then that leads to more rainfall. So you can literally make the deserts green. Yep. I saw the question go by about U.S. versus other countries. The U.S., yeah. we've heavily chased the industrialization. Other places like Argentina do a lot better job raising grass-fed beef. I'm not sure how many countries like Argentina, though, are really pushing the deep regenerative practices. There's a lot of good education being done out there that's starting to try to get this to take more and more root in the industry. The more people doing it, the better. Yeah, there's a lot of regenerative agriculture in Argentina where they use llamas. What about uh, other animals other than cows? What do you uh, think of using bison and lamb and uh, camels? Do you have any thoughts on these? Anything that's a ruminant can be used for the exact same purposes. The bison are difficult in particular because they're hard to fence. So how do you mob them, right? How do you put them together in a way where you can move them around to manage the soil? They just go right through fences. But any animal that is a ruminant that can eat just the roughage cellulose and then turn it into compost is an animal you can use to green the deserts as long as they can survive on whatever the given climate conditions are in their local area. That yeah. and goats behave calmly enough to be managed by humans. Yeah, and goats are really good at this because they'll go on any rocky surface on any desert. They'll withstand anything and eat anything. They don't care, right? Yep. I'm yeah. using fresh cows, which are really cool because my cows will pretty much eat like leaves and trees and weeds and all the kind of same stuff goats would eat. Yeah, fantastic. All right, who's got uh, questions? Anybody want to ask any questions? So I could ask one about specifically, it would be good to go into a bit more detail, Joel, on how you see the financial system playing into this, these practices in farming. Uh, so we've talked a little bit about regulation and how regulation is keeping meat prices high and limits the way in which you can sell your, your meat. But specifically, how is it that the kind of debt-based fiat monetary system encourages these practices in a way that having, having sound money would not encourage them? Good question. So partly, right, you got this whole debt-based system, which is what incentivized this chase to the bottom of low-cost inputs based on just pursuing surviving the hamster wheel of debt. That's all what happened previously. Where we're at now is everything is so broken that it's being kept afloat by subsidies. And we've got this whole new ESG system being developed, right? Where it's all about these carbon offset credits, right? Which once again is kind of like crony capitalism 2.0. For example, recently at Lando Lakes, they took one of their feedlots, they put in a bunch of solar panels and LED lights, and now they got bare dirt all over this property and you get carbon credits that they're selling on the open market because they did these little things, right? That whole thing is starting to infiltrate into the farmer farming industry where if you do certain things, you can get like four or five tons of carbon credits per cow per year. But this whole thing is just going to be this whole Cantillionaire all over again, where 
you had this high upfront cost that only the big guys can afford to pay to play these games. You've got a whole regulatory system based upon giving approvals to your buddies who are playing the game and checking the box to keep the whole contillionaires happy all the way to the top, right? And it's going to centralize the whole industry and destroy small farmers once again, where some of these farms that are making credits on cattle are making nearly as much money on the carbon offsets as they are on raising cattle themselves. So it's just we're throwing more mechanistic authority of just top-down decision-making at the industry, again, trying to fix it because it's so broken. And all we're going to end up doing is just centralizing it in a crony system that gets even worse and causes even more destruction. We just really just need it to pop. <laughs> if the whole thing went away, us small-scale farmers would take over everything tomorrow. It's We need the economy to definancialize, and that's that's kind of where Bitcoin comes in, right? Yeah, demonetizing land, I think it's... Um is the goal here a lot of people used to say things like we're going to tokenize the world that we're going to make a token out of everything and i think a good way of understanding what bitcoin does is the exact opposite of that bitcoin is going to quite seriously de-tokenize the world and that it's going to stop people having to make a token of money out of everything instead of everything being money we just have one money that works as money because it works as money across space and across time. And so you don't need to keep any of all these other inferior money that, that we keep having to deal with. Yep. I saw the question go by about solar panels too. Uh -huh. My land that I'm leasing from just, my landlord in Virginia. If you don't mind, Joel. Uh, yep, go for it. Uh, William is asking, I hear that solar panels receive higher rental values than cattle raising per acre to the extent that they cannot compete. Is that true? absolutely true my landlord in virginia she had two solar panel companies offer her leases for her property one offered her 800 bucks per acre per year and the other offered her 1200 bucks per acre per year this whole market once again is just based upon carbon offsets they're selling power back to the grid but really it's just because of the whole crony offset system right it's the esg stuff all over again your average grazing lease in the U.S. is $15 per acres per year. So this whole system, due to this whole crony capitalism carbon offset market, is creating a competitor. It's a completely fake competitor for the productive value of land. That's almost a factor of what, 100x of what a farmer can afford to pay for the land. And now it's forcing the farmers to have to play the carbon offset games to compete with these other guys like your renewable energy company playing the carbon offset games. And we're all just having to chase, trying to pander to the agenda here in order to survive. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. These solar panels are the gift that keeps on giving. So these things practically, I mean, they would probably exist in some small capacity. You know, people will have it as a heater for water, particularly in sunny locations. It's something that works great keeps your uh, water hot most of the day. But uh, the notion that you will use it to generate electricity is just an enormously fiat idea. And I have a whole chapter on this in the fiat standard called uh, Fiat Fuels, which is incidentally, I should uh, mention now, is now available for pre-order. You can pre-order the fiat standard on my website, go to safety.com slash Kickstarter. And there's a chapter on fiat fuels, which is, in my mind, particularly solar biofuels 
and wind. And in particular, the idea that uh, you can generate um, power from solar and wind. These are intermittent sources. They're not on at all times, but people need electricity at all times. So they can't function on their own. They need to be backed up by reliable energy sources like hydrocarbons or nuclear or hydroelectric power. You need to have these and you need to have these be able to deliver 100% capacity because solar and wind could go to zero and the solar goes to zero every night and wind can always go to zero if the wind stops blowing. So at night, if the wind's not blowing, they both could be zero, but it could be a night at which you have peak demand because it's cold or because people are using a lot of power because there's an important TV game, uh, game on TV or whatever it is. So you need to have the capacity to run your power plant, your reliable energy power plant, you need it. It takes up a little bit of land and it's able to um, produce a lot of power reliably at all times. So you need to buy that anyway. It takes very little land, produces very little pollution. And so the notion that you're benefiting somehow from investing in these enormous amounts of land to use it to generate energy that's superfluous it's really you know it's not just intermittent i think it's superfluous because you already need to have the capacity to provide at peak load from the reliable energy sources so it's a complete waste of resources and the only reason that it happens is because it gets subsidies and it's just been the same story for many years now where we keep hearing about these energy sources they're gonna change the world and they're gonna save the planet and they're gonna get much better but they don't they just keep um getting more and more subsidies but the interesting thing is i'm wondering how do these solar panels treat the land have you heard from landowners who implemented this put a large amount of solar panels for power generation and then found out uh, you know what happened to the land i'd imagine it can be good to cover it from the sun for so long right so some companies are getting into doing symbiotic things where they're putting in panels that are taller so they can grow actual ground cover and do pollinators and stuff underneath of it and or graze sheep or something underneath the panels that's mm -hmm. not terrible they try to work pretty hard to do low impact where they're driving the steel beams in and then you can just pull them right back out and they have very minimal concrete pads or some electronics those aren't super destructive some companies don't care about that at all and they're coming in and putting concrete in and just pretty much just being destructive it very much depends upon the principles the company applies thankfully yeah. a lot of solar panel companies are starting to get into integrating with regenerative agriculture especially sheep operations they're using their kind of fiat monetary success to the carbon credits to give really cheap lease rates for like uh or even sometimes they pay for the sheep as like grazing as a service where it's like they pay you like to be their landscaper to keep the grass down right the local communities aren't letting them put in solar panels anymore they won't like when they go to the county to get approval for permits can we like put in solar panels on these lands the local communities are all up in arms of like you're buying up all the farmland so they're using regenerative agriculture as a way to maintain political support which is interesting Oh, I see. If we just got rid of the carbon offset markets, this whole thing would make sense because prices would dictate what actually was sensible to be doing. Yeah, exactly. You know, we just need markets. Markets will tell people what is worthwhile. It's amazing how hard it is for people to get this. 
but there's hope because there's Bitcoin, I guess. <laughs> All right. Uh, anybody else got any more questions for Joel? Yeah, Joel, I was uh, confused by your comment on selling. You're in Texas, I think. Is that correct? I'm in Virginia. Ah, Virginia. So I use Texas as an example because it's known as a freedom-loving state, so it shows just how bad it is here in the U.S. <laughs> the restrictions you're talking about, are those just federal inspection process or are you, like here in Kansas, I buy sides of beef and whole beef all the time. No issue. Now, it has to go through a federally inspected processing plant and yep. I can't resell it retail, but I can buy all I want. Mm -hmm. I assume the same is true there in Virginia. Yes. Yeah, so the federal inspection process for USDA inspection for meat is a crony system that's very unevenly enforced. If a small business tries to boot up a processing like facility, one, you have really high upfront expenses in order to get all your approvals and everything taken care of. But on top of that, and Joel Salvin talks about this a lot in his book, Everything I Want to Do is Illegal, where he was trying to do on-farm processing of chickens and get USDA approval to set up a little open-air processing unit. That way he could sell chickens to his customer base at scale, right? And with the little guys that try to do this, the USDA inspectors come through and they are ridiculously strict about all sorts of inanity. And they let all that stuff slide with the big processors. So they've created this competitive landscape where the regulatory burden for the little processors is extraordinary. And then they let it all slide with the big guys. So for us little guys, we have to be willing to eat the cost and all the headaches of working with the big processors in order to get our meat processed. And they'll do stuff to us little guys often where like, they won't even, I'll give you my cow to have you process it as a big processor. They'll give me back meat for a different animal and they'll just keep my cow because it was the better meat and they'll sell it to their buddies because like traceability is a huge issue with these giant processors and the little guys can't compete enough due to this regulatory stuff to make it even possible for me to have another option of somebody that'll treat me better as a small guy. And with that, the whole cost of processing is very controlled by these giant centralized mega corporations, which makes it really hard for the little guys to compete. Currently, with the post-COVID world, your lead time on getting an animal butchered, last time I checked, was 18 to 20 plus months. You had to get scheduled just to get one or two cows processed by some of these places. I've noticed here... My wife and I have always purchased bulk beef. So we're real disciplined in how to go about consuming it, which, mm -hmm. is, which is the problem most people have. They fill a freezer and then they don't know what to do with it. But buying in bulk, we buy all grass-fed beef. We bought from the same producer for probably 15, 20 years. And he has not raised his prices. And I have looked religiously we actually probably pay the same price for grass-fed beef that we would pay for regular beef if we just visited the grocery store regularly the point i'm making is i don't think a lot of people really understand it's even available 
I yep. tell people this and they look at me with a pretty blind stare, like I'm surely lying. Yeah, we can raise it so much cheaper when we're doing actual like low input grazing. It, the problem is just these processors eat up so much of the margins and even getting them to reliably process our animals so we can sell them to our customers. Seems like you guys got a good local setup there where it's actually they've got enough inventory or something to make it work. He delivers. He backs his trailer up to our freezer. That's awesome. It's, it's the simplest thing in the world. <laughs> I wonder yeah. if he's doing it off the books or if he's actually going through the inspected process. No, it comes directly from a federal inspected butcher and we supply all the butchering specs. So we get all the organ meat, we get all the liver. Uh, we actually also get all the bones from the whole beef since we're the awesome. customer that'll take them. Then we can make gallons of broth. Nice. So do you get the brains? I heard that you can't get brains in the US, is that true? Uh, I cannot get them. Joel, can you get them? I've never been able to get them safe. I've never that's been able important. to. There's some stuff they just won't give me. Wow, that's amazing. I remember in Canada, there was a butcher that used to import them from Australia. For some reason, uh, they managed to get it. But it's it's very hard to get it in North America. In the US and Canada, it's very hard to find places that sell brains. But uh, Brains are uh, uh, great food. They're extremely nutritious and delicious. I highly recommend it if you live in a place where they're legal. It was my mom's favorite food was brain and tongue. Yeah, they're both extremely yeah. delicious. Yeah, I think if people try to appreciate the entire animal, I think that there's something really nice about eating the entire animal and eating all the organs. When people talk about, well, you know, there's no variety, but actually there's a lot of variety in an animal. They're very different cuts and organs. And they taste delicious. Uh, I think so. You just know how, need to know how to prepare them. I'm going to add that to my list of things that are less regulated in China than the rest of the world. You can get brains and get absolutely anything <laughs> you want in China. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is this, these things matter a lot. I think having the freedom to get your own food is, uh, is a huge deal. And it's a, it's a freedom that's being taken away. I think all over the world, you see more and more regulations uh, coming up. And now you see these hysterical people want to stop people from eating beef in order to eat their industrial slop. Incidentally, you know, see people like Bill Gates talking about needing to feed the planet artificial meat. And of course, all that artificial meat is going to be made out of... Uh, industrial crops that are farmed on his land, America's biggest landowner and possibly the world's biggest landowner as well. His lands are just enormous, enormous monocropped factories making all the crops that are going into all the industrial, well, most industrial manufacturers. Yeah, of course, he thinks there's a very good reason for you to stop eating meat and start eating all of that processed industrial slop. He stands to gain significantly from it. But to be fair to him, I'll always credit him this, at least he believes his own bullshit. We can tell by just looking at him that he clearly believes his own bullshit when it comes to this. Like he clearly also, I, I, I bet, you know, Bill Gates has like a, uh, a private lab, which he doesn't talk about, where he has uh, hired an enormous number of uh, very smart scientists to try and work on developing the best plant-based foods for him because he really thinks this is how you save the planet. And, um, you know, it's, it's very convenient for him to believe this, obviously, because it helps him invest in all of this agriculture and make money from it. And he thinks he's saving the planet from it. But 
he's he's saving the planet as much as he is saving his own health. And um, if you look at him, he doesn't look too well, I think. And it's because he eats the industrial slop that is farmed on his farmland. It's it's almost certain that is the case. And he believes that that is bad for Earth. Uh, sorry, he believes that that is good for Earth and good for him. But I think it's pretty obvious for anybody to see that this is like the equivalent of flat Earth beliefs these days. If you think about just something that's so completely out of any rational consideration. It's clear that this is not how the earth thrives. Uh, You're depleting the soil and people are getting sick from eating this. And um, interestingly enough, you know, if you look at Switzerland, Switzerland is like the country that maintained the gold standard for the longest. They were on the gold standard until the 1970s. And they had the most, I think, grazing. It's a country that has a lot of grazing and a lot of cattle and a lot of cows. And they also have the lowest obesity rate in all of Europe. I found this an interesting data point. You know, I always, whenever I think about something, I look at Switzerland and you compare Switzerland to others and they always make the case for why sound money and hard money does a society good. So under hard money, they had zero unemployment and zero inflation practically up until the 1970s, as I discussed in the Bitcoin standard. And under hard money, they've um, managed to have the least obesity. They've maintained their soil quite well. They have a lot of uh, grazing and not a lot of farming. But I think things are changing now. They're becoming much more of a uh, fiat economy because you know they've gone off the gold standard and are joining everybody else and just becoming... <sighs> Fiat uh, strip mined. You know, you fly over Switzerland now, you see more and more cornfields and soy fields, unfortunately, amongst the grazing cattle. But hopefully, Bitcoin fixes that too. Anybody want to ask any other questions? Joel, I would just ask it sounds like you have a lot of dairy production going on if you are favoring female cattle. What are you doing with the dairy? Is that being shared among consumers? I am only raising them for beef. It's the easiest model economically to bootstrap the operations for getting going with more of these regenerative farms. So my cattle in particular produce just enough milk to get the babies growing to a satisfactory size to wean them off to get them growing for finishing for meat. I do love raw grass-fed dairy trying to get that to work as an economical model that we can scale is a completely different problem. Yeah, it's illegal in most of the U.S., right? Yes, sadly. In Virginia, I actually have some herd shares with a local farmer who actually keeps dairy cattle that I pay him to board my animals and he delivers some raw milk to a local like house that a bunch of us have herd shares where we just go pick up the raw milk from the fridge in the garage. It's wow. crazy. They're very strict about raw milk here in the States. There's actually been SWAT teams raids on actual raw milk farms. It's insanity. Yeah, I mean, this is a great case for, uh, you know, without government, who would raid the farmers? This is, this is a <laughs> anarchists. checkmate anarchists. <laughs> Ridiculous. Yeah, I, I love using raw dairy is one of the cornerstone like nutrition sources for families and homesteads it makes sense for everybody at a homestead scale to have their own family milk cow my goal with the cattle co-op and a lot of the project i'm running 
is to get as much land and food security developed as possible for as many Bitcoin families and communities as possible. The upfront labor and knowledge required to do the dairy is a lot higher than doing these really rugged low input beef cows. So there will be like a much higher cost of training and equipment and capital goods and things to get dairies going. So for now, I'm just focusing on the easy win of getting people that don't know how to do the grazing up and doing it with the easy keeping beef cows with the lower capital expenditure. And then maybe down the road a couple of years when we have some guys who know what they're doing, we'll scale into doing other parts. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much, Joel, for joining us. And thank you everybody for joining. This was a lot of fun and quite an inspirational story. I hope uh, a lot of people listen to you and make the world's deserts bloom with beautiful cattle and delicious ribeye. Thank you. Appreciate it, safe.